my father was always, my mother, very charitable people. Even when we had little, we used to share. He used to give each child, you bring a few pounds of potatoes, you bring a bread, to the people that were poorer than we were. I will always remember my parents for being good. That's all. And, and I like to be the same. That's all. Because they were the best in the world. To Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Abram Merczynski was born on June 15, 1923, in Ludz, Poland. He was the third of six children, five boys, and a girl who died in childhood. His mother owned a grocery store, and his father sold feed for farm animals. During the worst of the Depression, they spent winters in their basement because they couldn't afford to buy windows for the new house they had just built. Their horse, which was lame, slept with the family so it wouldn't freeze. It is now December 2nd, 1990, and Abram Merchinsky is sharing his memories with interviewer Devorah Mann at the Museum of Jewish Heritage Office in Midtown Manhattan. Abram sits against a black backdrop. He's dressed in a dark suit, white shirt, and a wine-colored tie. He's mostly bald, his silver hair combed neatly back at the sides. His black eyebrows and cleft chin punctuate his expressive full face. The only thing what I told you that I didn't like in Poland is just, you know, that we knew that they don't love us. They don't like us. I don't say that there were not exceptions, but a, a lot, a lot anti-Semites. There's no question about it. That's all I have to say. Do you say. remember any instances, an example? The example that I tell you, this one with the policeman, like uh, I went to school, they used to throw stones at me. You know, I went over to a policeman. His answer said, they didn't kill you yet. This was my protector. So th this is one instant. I don't think you need a better instant than something like this. Can that you tell the us policeman what? that is supposed to protect you said they didn't kill you yet. There were very, very few, believe me, that were nice. I don't say that were not exceptions. There were some nice ones. But in comparison with the percentage, was very little. That's why I really have never a desire to go back to my country where I was born. I have no feeling whatsoever. And then, uh, I don't have to tell you what happened, all of a sudden, uh, you know, Hitler started, you know, the war with Poland, you know, in 1939. And it only took uh, two, three days they were in Lodz. When the, bro when the war broke, where have you been? We have been in our house uh, for a few months. When the ghetto started, we had to leave because our section was not considered the ghetto. 
So we used to live, uh, there was a street, uh, Marinarska 16. Marinarska 16, we got an apartment. And that's where we lived, a little small apartment, uh, if you want to call it this, living, you know. This was in the ghetto. In the ghetto, yeah. And I was working where they used to make uh, telephones, fixing telephones for the Germans. And then uh, they gave to each of these groups a little bit of ground, you know, to, to grow things. And I knew about this, you know, from the farms, you know, what I used to live Where in. In the ghetto itself? In the ghetto itself, you know. Mm -hmm. So I used to work with this, so we used to get uh, a little bit uh, more than others, and I used to share, and I used to give, and used to help whatever I could, you know what I mean. Because a potato, people would give you a diamond if they had to get a couple of potatoes. The hunger was very great. What you used to do, we used to take the peel of the potatoes and, and you know, from the coffee what remains, we used to make cake out of this, from the peel of the potatoes and that coffee ersatz. From this we used to make cake. You can imagine what kind of a cake. But we licked the fingers from, from a cake like that. We didn't have wood to cook. We used to chop up everything, whatever we had, the furniture, to till, till you were left with the bare walls, you know, just on the mattress, you know. You know, everybody tried as, as hard as they could. We even took a chance and we used to, we, we had a brewery in the house. What? We used to, a brewery. We used to make whiskey out of sugar to be able to make some money. Who was buying the police, you know? The one that could afford. Okay. And then my older brother, you know, he rem uh, remembered his friend, you know, that the uh, great violinist, you know, he was supposed to ready to give a concert. So my brother, the oldest one, and one younger one, that we tried to get together all the great musicians in, in the ghetto, and, and he formed an orchestra to give a little bit life to the people, whoever, you know, uh, still wanted to live. The people still have the yearning, for, uh, you know, for something good in life. So you were, the whole family were together in the, in yes, the ghetto? Yes, we were together in the, in the ghetto, you know, and, uh, and then in 19... Uh, we struggled, you know, they sent away. I had an uncle and a many relatives. They, they, half of the families were taken away. They used to grab them in the street, you know. Every day, every few days, they used to grab people and send out with transports, which we never when, knew. When did it start, the grabbing It started people? already like in 41. What did you think where they were taken to? We thought they were being taken to work. You know, they always wrote, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free, you know. They always talked that we take it to work. Yeah, we believe. We believe. Nobody really in their right mind could imagine that they, that they could do uh, things like this. Just take innocent people and murder and put to guest chambers or something. Nobody could imagine. They took everybody, you know, they took everybody to send out. We went uh, to, the, to the trains, 
and they took us to Auschwitz. The whole family? The whole family. They uh, took us to Auschwitz and then started the segregation. You know, my mother, they took her to the left, which right away uh, went to the, to, the, you know, to the ovens, you know. Mm -hmm. Once we did not see it no more, and we, and we saw the ovens and the smoke every day. You know what I mean? They told us what happened. That's all. My father was with me in camp, and my two brothers, they were in a different camp. They separated us. But uh, we, were in camp. we were in Auschwitz about three days, and after this, they sent us to, uh, sent us to other camps. Mm -hmm. I, I went to Kaufering and, and or Landsberg, uh, Lager 4, Lager 11. That was the two camps I was. We didn't do uh, any productive work in the concentration camp. Only you? just to kill you and to, and to bother you. Either chopping wood or cutting down wood or carrying stones from one place to the next. I'm telling you, just plainly, just to kill you slowly. You know what I mean? That's all. You just cannot imagine what they did to the people, you know. You, it, it's unimaginable. You, you lost completely uh, human, human feelings, you know what I mean? In what way? You, 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 in, in every way, you know what I'm talking about? It would not bother you to see a dead person didn't make any impression on you. You could sit on dead people and it would not bother you. Absolutely no, no feeling inside anymore. They made you inhuman, plain, simply inhuman. You were with your father all this time? Not in one barrack. He was separated from me. I wish I would, he would have been with me in one. I don't know if that would have helped or not, you know. But, you know, you like to be with your father together, but they separated us, just like they had separated my two brothers. Whenever I could see my father, I tried. They didn't allow it. Whenever I could uh, uh, walk over to him and see to help with something, with a little food, I, I tried. What happened one day, I did not feel good, so I went uh, to the doctor, you know. So what they did, they threw a cold pail of water on me, and then I did not know what happened. I woke up eight days later, I had typhus. After they threw that cold water on me, I must have fainted, and then they took me into that room. No medicine, not anything. It's a miracle how I survived. I was so hungry because after this sickness, you feel so hungry that nothing bothered me. I would eat mice, I would eat. That's how hungry I was. And then they told me, I'm ready to work already. When I went down, I put in my foot in the ground, I couldn't take it out. So I tried to do my best to hide, uh, not to go to work, you know. And then I got the, also the dysentery and that nobody should know from it. This is the worst thing what can be. You burn up and, uh, and you can't, and you want to drink and you, and you don't want to live. It's, it's plainly unbelievable. And uh, my father, sorry to say, two months before the liberation, he died from dysentery, you know, you know. Before the liberation, no, they, they said, they didn't say nothing. They just said, now we have to leave the camp. 
But a day before, I had decided with another friend, a Hungarian fellow, I said, you know, I don't want to leave the camp anymore. I don't care what happened. And I was hiding with him amongst, they were laying a few dead people in the barrack, so I was hiding amongst the dead, you know, and covered myself up. And then, and then all of a sudden, it was like five or six in the morning, I heard a big commotion. And then I saw a lot of people coming, bandaged and injured and this, so I walked out. And they told me, oh, you were lucky you were hiding. You could have been dead. Because the Americans were bombing these uh, this, uh, trains, you know, and a lot of people got killed and a lot of people got injured. So then they, uh, we were there for one more day, and then they said, again, we are leaving, and every barrack is going to be burned down. So then uh, we decided to leave. We were riding back and forth for three days. They used to bomb, we used to run down to the woods, some with the Germans, you know. And one time we were so hungry, so we broke open a wagon to take out the bread. <coughs> so a German came over to me with a gun and, and, and grabbed that bread out from my hands. I thought for sure he's going to kill me. And then we were going on hungry and thirsty for three days, you know, till we came to Dachau. We came into Dachau, and then they said to get undressed, and we were all undressed for a few hours. We were standing maybe till about 11 or 12 at night, and then they said, now we're going to go to the shower. I'll be honest with you, honestly and sincerely, I thought that the shower is going to the gas. But thanks God, we really went to the shower. And after the shower, they gave, they gave us a blanket, and we walked for about two miles to the barracks. And when I came into the barracks, I must have weighed maybe 80 pounds. I could hardly walk already. So there was like two beds, you know, a bunker beds. I said to my friend, you climb on top, you are stronger. I can walk on top. So I laid down for the first time. I felt clean after so many months. I said to myself, you know, I have enough. Like this, I want to die. I really don't want to live anymore. I don't want anymore. And then they called up, if anybody's hungry, to we're giving out the soup. But I did not even want to go down for the soup anymore. I had no more the strength. I had no more feeling. I, it just felt so good to be clean. And then, in around 7 o'clock in the morning, Somebody came in, he said, I have news, we are liberated. You know, which I, I really, it did not really penetrate, you know, that we are free people. It's not that I forgot, you forget, you never forget. But I had constant these, uh, these dreams. And like what? I would wake up thinking, you know, that I'm, I'm still in camp. My, my heart was beating, and I was thinking, oh, they are waking us up, you know, to come out, to be counted, and this. You can't imagine the feeling. And then when I woke up, my heart was almost jumping out of my body. That's how I felt. And then, oh, thank God I'm in my bed, you know? 
and, and these nightmares, you know, was going on for a long time. And I even went to the doctors and I told them about it and they said, it's going to go away, it's going to go away. But for so many years, I had these nightmares. I, I even did not want to tell the children and I didn't want to tell my wife about it. But many times it happened, you know, that I felt, oh, you know. I, I don't think, forget, forget about it. We can never forget. And I, I never told the children, because if I would start, I would start right away. I would start crying. I, I did not want to give them the heaviness of my heart and them. But no, then now, then we started already that we, we should tell and the, the people should know and the second generation should take over, which my daughter will take. She's so in interested in this and my son. So I, I feel it's the right thing that when are we going to tell when we are dead? There's not many left of us. Abram's four brothers survived the war. They reunited and settled in Munich while making plans for where to go next. While he waited for a visa to the United States, Abram remembered how much he had loved the violin when he heard his brother's orchestra back in the Lodge ghetto. I promised myself if I survive, I'm gonna learn to play the violin. And, and that's what I did when I saw a German man walking with a violin. Where I went in Munich? In Munich, yeah, I bought a violin, and then the next time I see teacher, I went up to, and the, and the teacher said, you know, you're crazy. At 22, 23, you want to start to play the violin. I couldn't convince him until I told him, give me one hour. If you see I have no talent, forget about it. So then, after that one hour went into three hours, and he accepted me as a student, and I used to be crazy with that violin, six, seven hours I used to practice every day. I played Bach violin concerto in six months for two Do, Did you bring this, the same violin that you bought? Yes, I, I, you, I, I still have the same violin so over here. Let me get it. May you, you'll play something for us? First, I'm going to play for you. Uh, uh, I feel that's appropriate.
So I know I'm not Itzhak Perlman. I wish I would have given away everything I own, I have, to be able to play like he does. Abram Merchinsky and his brother Izzy arrived in the United States in 1949. His two other brothers immigrated to Israel and France. Abram met his wife Miriam on a trip to Israel in 1961, and they settled in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Abram went into the garment business with his brother and three other survivors from Poland. Their Brooklyn-based company manufactured women's sweaters. Abram Merchinsky died on July 26, 2011, in Cedarhurst, New York. He was survived by his wife, Miriam, his children, Stephen and Eleanor, and four grandchildren. Abram's love of music inspired all his children and grandchildren to take lessons. Abram's granddaughter, Hannah, founded an all-girl band at her high school, and his granddaughter, Esther, plays the violin. She fell in love with the instrument from the many times her grandfather played her happy birthday on his own treasured violin. To learn more about Abram Merchinsky, please visit our companion website at thosewhowerethere.org. It includes episode notes, a full transcript, and archival photographs. That's where you can also find our previous episodes and background information on the Fortune Off Video Archive and the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortune Off Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at the Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department in New Haven, Connecticut. This second season is a co-production with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, New York's contribution to the global responsibility to never forget. The museum is committed to the crucial mission of educating diverse visitors about Jewish life before, during, and after the Holocaust. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, the Fortune Off Archives Director Stephen Naren, and Trevor Walsh, Collections Project Manager at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Thank you to audio engineer John Gordon. Thanks as well to Christy Bailey Tomacek, Joanna Aruda, Noah Guto Ellis, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. And thank you to Sam Cassow for historical oversight, and to photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, including Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Sarah Barber. Leova Zerbin composed our theme music. Thank you as well to Stephen Merchinsky for providing family photographs and background information about his father. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. <laughs>